The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is Dr Kat Jarman. And Kat's new book is called River Kings, A New History of Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads, which is wider than we thought Vikings may have gone. But Kat, it begins with something very small indeed, doesn't it? It's a single carnelian bead sets you off on this substantial work of scholarship. Tell me about that. Yes, that's right. It's uh, probably a bit surprising how that very small object can try and tell that very big story. But that was part of what I wanted to do. I wanted to get that contrast between how we are learning so much from very, very small objects. You don't necessarily need a huge, big and important source, but actually something something quite unexpected can, can take you in a different direction. And um, and actually, this, this bead in itself, as I start the book with, did start me uh, on that new way of thinking as well very much because it kind of represented something that I hadn't really thought about and that was exactly the, the the sort of direct contact between the Vikings that we're familiar with here in Britain and those who came and raid and attacked monasteries and that very traditional story and those who went all the way to the east and all the very, very large trading networks that extended all the way to the Silk Road. So so that bead really very much started the story for me, which is why I wanted to, to start the, the book with it as well. Well, tell us about this bead. It was found in the UK in Repton, is that right? That's right, yes. So Repton is probably one of the better known Viking Age sites in England. It was the winter camp of the Viking Great Army that sort of marauded around the country from the 860s onwards. And the site was its very much a kind of traditional Viking picture. You have an attack on a monastery, you have a desecration of old royal burials, uh, and also excavations in the 80s found a huge number of bodies, so Viking graves, definite sort of warrior graves with Thor's hammer and, and sword and all that, what you would expect essentially from a, from a Viking burial, as well as a very large mass burial of nearly 300 people found underneath a mound. And we, we sort of known that story for quite some time, but this bead was also discovered in the 80s, this carnelian bead, but it was, it was kind of forgotten about. And I came across it in uh, 2017 and started learning a bit more and realising that actually that bead had travelled all the way, most likely from uh, Gujarat in India, to Repton in the 9th century. And that really was the starting point to try to move away from that traditional story and see what other connections we might have. Yeah, no. I mean, as you say, there is a traditional story of Vikings, and we think of them as these sort of very sort of smelly, violent, hairy-arsed articles coming over from Scandinavia, and sort of basically arriving in Northumbria, smashing up the monasteries, setting fire to the sheep, hauling away the women folk. And is that what they were actually like? I mean, is that is there truth in that image, or you know, were they were they sensitive souls? Uh, I think there's there's a bit of both there. So that is definitely a side to the Vikings that we can't ignore. Uh, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of that. I think the reason why we focus so much on that side is because the written sources, the contemporary written sources, especially from England, 
focus on that. So the attack on Lindisfarne, for example, which sort of kicks off the whole Viking Age, is very graphic in detail of exactly what sort of atrocities were carried out. But the Vikings weren't, they certainly weren't the only people being violent in the 8th, 9th century. And in fact, I, I think that they sort of gave as good as they got in a way that actually the, the locals too, perhaps not the monks in the monasteries, but uh, but certainly warfare was a very important part of early medieval life. But there is a, a big other side to the Vikings too, which is is the, the sort of peaceful side and the peaceful settlement of England is perhaps not quite as well known uh, and other parts of the world as well. And after, especially after the, the Second World War, when, when the Vikings were very much used uh, as propaganda for, for Nazi Germany, after that, there was a bit of a as of an increase in the, the sort of softer side of the Vikings. The researchers were quite quite kind of tired of, of just focusing on the violence and wanted to explore this, this sort of trading side, especially. Uh, and that's that's really developed. But I think we've now reached a side where we know that that both are part of the picture. But I'm I'm interested in also telling that other side that the extensive global networks that, that they were part of. Yeah, at this I mean, one of the extraordinary things about the Vikings that goes through your story is that they had a sort of techno a set of technologies that allowed them not only to raid and conquer and set fire to stuff, but to, to trade and establish bases and areas of operation all through the world. Can you tell me a bit about these technologies? They were a great seafaring people. You know, that was obviously what we know about them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Viking ship certainly was a massive part of the Viking success. And it's not a coincidence that in the late 8th century, when we see the start of the Viking era, that that's also when these ships start to really develop. I don't think the ship itself was a cause for the Viking Age, but it facilitated the wide-ranging movement. So that the, what was new about the Viking ship really was it was the use of sails and it was use of a keel, which made these ships very stable, able to cross uh, the North Sea, the North Atlantic, far and wide. But they were also very shallow and very suitable to landing on beaches, going down shallow rivers, uh, even being dragged over land uh, if needed. And that meant that through using these ships, the Vikings could actually take advantage of so many different circumstances. So you can you can kind of go in the same ship across the North Sea uh, or across to Iceland. You can bring cattle with you uh, and you can also quite quickly and silently launch attacks unsuspecting monks in, in monasteries. So this, this kind of really, really helped it. But as well as that, I think in a lot of parts of the world, the people that sort of we think of as the Vikings would be very good at taking advantage of whatever they needed to take advantage of uh, at times. So in some places that would mean using different types of vessels, different types of boats uh, in the rivers in the east, for example, which I talk quite a lot about in the book. Uh, we see them using smaller vessels and then actually building and adapting from other parts, types of technology. So it's really a big key is, is knowing how to take advantage of technology for whatever circumstance is needed. Yeah, and you have these moments, sort of eureka moments, when you find a tiny little bit of iron, right? that's a ship's nail, we know that they were repairing ships here, and that tells you something about what they were doing, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, for instance, it begins with you trying to figure out, you know, at Repton, and a little upriver from there, you, you're trying to figure out, you know, what the Great Army was actually doing. You know, what was the pattern? Because we know that they went on to sort of settle substantial parts of, the, of what's now the UK. But at that point, what were they up to? And why were they in Repton over winter, as it were? 
<laughs> yeah, so this great army appears to have had a, a very seasonal pattern of raiding, which meant that they would launch most of their attacks and move around the country in the spring. And then in the autumn, they would set up camps or these, these winter camps, which are recorded quite well in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. So we have this contemporary record that tells us in, in the year 873, for example, they go to Repton. So some of that is to be able to facilitate this movement. And what's clear when we hear about the Great Army from these records is that it's a bit of a step up. So it's a difference from what we see uh, right at the beginning of the Viking Age. We're not talking about just quick sort of hit and run raids anymore, like we saw at the beginning, not just looking for loot and then heading back home. But we're actually looking at quite a targeted political conquest. So we're talking about a group that's moving around the country, aiming to take over the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So Repton is a part of Mercia at the time, and this was sort of one of the, the key aims at the time. They'd already conquered various other kingdoms, and, and now they wanted Mercia. And Repton was sort of the jewel in the crown, if you like, of that. It was the very much the kind of religious capital. It was where all the Mercian royals were being buried in uh, what, what's now St. Winston's Church. And so by taking Repton, they could essentially take control. And in fact, they, they sort of scare off the Mercian king who goes into exile and, and never comes back. And then they install a, a puppet king in his place that they can have a, a sort of have control over. So we're talking about people who are actually now, they're, they're doing something much bigger. They are looking, uh, of the, looking at a much grander scale. But on a practical level, you have what's probably a force of many thousand, we now think maybe about five, six thousand or so people who are moving around and having to do certain things over winter. So you have to work out how to feed them. You have to work out how to repair those ships because they're quite fragile. You have to have the weapons. You have to have all the resources. So these camps and these objects, you know, the, the bit of iron that you mentioned turns out to be a ship nail that tells us that they're fixing, they're repairing boats. Uh, you know, you can get spindle whirls that, that show us that they're making fabrics, maybe repairing sails. And so you sort of, you There's get the sails, two scales. There's an absolutely staggering statistic in the book about these woolen sails that they used, how much wool you'd have needed? Could you? Yes, I would have to look up. I can't actually it's something remember. That, <laughs> well, it's something like, I, I mean, is it like thousands or, or many, many hundreds of uninterrupted days of labour to make a single sail? They need, what, a thousand metres squared or something? Yes, absolutely. So there's some calculations have been made looking at exactly that. And uh, I think it's over a year's worth of labour just to produce a single sale. And it's really quite staggering because you don't really think of that. You don't think of those resources that are needed just for one single boat, one single sale. And so obviously when that tears and rips uh, along the way, then you're, you're in trouble. So so there's a lot of uh, logistics behind every sort of every raid and every every attack. Uh, you've got, a, you've got a Viking somewhere, haven't you, who's... You know, again, this big butch Viking who's reduced to tears when the king confiscates his sail. Absolutely, because that is, you know, that's his future. That's his, his dreams and his ambitions are all tied up in the sail. And so, um, so, and we tend to not really think about that because the written sources would never, you know, they didn't really talk about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It doesn't tell you about the sails. It tells you about the kings and the, <laughs> and the rulers and the battles. In terms of sort of figuring out you know, what, what they're up to. There's some extraordinary modern technology that comes into the book that I, I'm gripped by. For instance, I mean, you talk about this sort of aerial laser photography where you can suddenly sort of take an X-ray of the land and, and strontium analysis for... The, I mean, obviously, presumably the last 10 or 15 years has produced 
a whole bunch of knowledge in your field that you know wouldn't have been available before. Can you tell me how all that absolutely. works? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really the exciting thing. And for me, being in this field is why uh, I feel like it's such an exciting time to be part of it, because we are developing so many methods now that that tell us things that we, we could only dream of 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. So one of those that you mentioned is LIDAR, which is uh, sort of laser photography. And what that allows us to do is, is get a really detailed view of the landscape, so or the topography. And we can use it for things like tracing old rivers, uh, but quite excitingly in terms of the, the Vikings is it allows us to search for things like burial mounds. Uh, the reason it can do that is it, that the images essentially can go through foliage and, and trees. So you not dependent on being actually to able to walk across an area and look at the lumps and bumps you can get this aerial view and and it's actually quite fun and if you've got some some spare time you can go online in england the environment agency have made these maps and this the sort of data sets available freely so you can sort of from home you can go to sites like uh, lidarfinder.com and you can literally just search like you would on google and you can look for lumps and bumps in, in the landscape and it's it's really quite extraordinary and very exciting so that gives an idea of finding sites and then a lot of what i do is uh, in the field of bioarchaeology so that's that's looking at human remains and looking at the chemical signatures that we have in our bodies because we are basically walking diaries of of our lives and everything that we eat and drink leaves a trace in our hair and our skin and what's good for us as archaeologists is that the same thing uh, is the case for our bones and our teeth and they're of course preserved for you know, thousands of years in the ground so you can take samples of the the body of somebody you think might have been a Viking and you can find out things about where they grew up what sort of food they ate um, and that sort of unlocks just a, a whole new world. It's, extra it's an extraordinary little bit where this, I think it's strontium dating that does the, the teeth, where you say, we had this puzzle. We thought that these bodies must all be 9th century. They fit perfectly with this. But then five or six of them seem to be like decades wrong. And you, yes. how did you sort of square that circle? Yeah, so that, that's one of the sort of earliest uh, parts of the research that I got involved in, actually. That particular one, what to do with uh, fish consumption and correcting radiocarbon dates. Because when this mass grave that I mentioned briefly earlier in Repton was first discovered, it was thought that this was the Great Army that it should date to the 9th century. But some of the uh, bodies, when they were already carbon dated, turned out to be several hundred years too early. So they couldn't possibly be Vikings. Um, and then what we now know is that if you eat a lot of fish or any other seafood, that actually affects the carbon in your body because carbon in marine, in oceans, in fish, circulates around for a really long time. And that's something we have to take into account. So if a, basically, if, if a fish and a, a sheep were killed by a Viking on the same day a thousand years ago, if I came to dig them up a thousand years later and radiocarbon date them, it would look like actually they lived 400 years apart. And that difference also is passed on to anybody who eats that fish or eats that, that sheep. So if you, for example, tend to just, you know, every day just eat fish in your food, then it wouldn't like, look like you were alive in the 2020. It would look like you had lived, you know, in a completely different time. So 
knowing that, uh, I was able to look at the diets, so analyze the diets of these people, which is another thing we can do with, with isotope analysis, um, and then take into account the difference. And it was... Was there a sort of eureka moment when someone figured that out? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you get these little steps and people work it out in different fields and then suddenly you go, okay, well, we have to apply this to this mystery that is reptin and, and these possible Viking burials. And it is, it was probably one of the nicest moments of my career so far, actually. Just you plot all the values into a computer and you used to press the button and you wait for a graph to come up and, and it sort of aligns beautifully. And, and, and there's, there's your answer, which is fantastic. Now, this reptin grave, it's one of the other sort of questions about it or mysteries about it is that you started to, yes, you know, you said there, there were women in there and more than you had expected. And again, we think of the Vikings as very sort of, you know, male. And as I think in some earlier theories, you know, they came over here because they had a, a shortage of women folk on the mainland. And how did the discovery of Repton and your investigations into that change or bear on your understanding of Viking women and what they did. Why were they here? Yes, that was a really interesting one. So when the, the site was first excavated and analysed in the 80s and 90s, they did realise that uh, quite early on that the massacre, which had nearly th 300 people in it, had about 20% women. But at the time, it was assumed that uh, those would have been local women, so Anglo-Saxon women that were then married to or taken slaves by, you know, whatever the relationship uh, to these Viking or Scandinavian men. And that was in part because at the time, it was very much assumed that those who came over from Scandinavia were almost exclusively men. And women would be sitting at home on the farm making those sales and, uh, and just essentially waiting for, for their husbands and brothers and, and sons to come back home again. I think for a lot of women, that was the case. But what we know now from elsewhere is that actually women were very much a part of the movement outside of Scandinavia as well. So it's, it's really not a case that all Scandinavian women stayed at home. We know that from things like the isotope analysis, so the, the chemical analysis of teeth, which can also tell you about where people came from. So we've found graves of, uh, and burials of women all over the place, and, and including in England, of women who clearly have migrated from Scandinavia. So that knowledge started to sort of reframe on who these women in Repton were. And when I carried out some of the analysis on their teeth as well, it showed that they definitely were not local uh, women. And some of them could only, in fact, have come from places with old geology or colder climates, so places like Scandinavia. So it seems very likely that they came across with that great army. So then you can, of course, start to ask the questions, what were they doing? Were they just sitting back and, and, and sewing? Or were they actually taking part in the, the sort of raiding force and in the battles? And the question of whether they took part, you know, as you point out, obviously, Viking mythology, as appropriated by Wagner, has warrior women in it. But there are a couple of graves, there's one in particular you talk about, that suggests that actually there may have been, you know, female fighting Vikings. Yeah, so this is a, has been a very big question, especially in the last few years, uh, because a lot of the mythology does have these fighting women, things like the Valkyries, for example, and goddesses like Freya, who are all known for their sort of prowess in, in the battlefield. But knowing whether that is just mythology and a, and a sort of fantasy, really, or uh, something real is quite hard. But then a few years ago, uh, one particular grave from Birka in Sweden, which is a, a very large uh, trading settlement, trading town, which also had this very strong 
warrior culture, essentially, lots of graves with a lot of weapons uh, and so on. One of those graves, which has been really seen as a sort of archetypal warrior grave, containing uh, a whole huge range of equipment, a weapon, two horses and so on, was always thought to be a man. But then a DNA analysis discovers something quite different, that in fact, this was uh, the body of a biological female. And, and that, of course, took the internet and the whole world by storm because it seemed to be evidence that this was a female warrior. Of course, not everyone accepted that interpretation because there's all sorts of things saying, well, you know, we don't know if she really used the weapons and we don't know uh, if, if just because she was buried in this way that she was actually uh, actively a warrior. But I think, you know, we need to think if somebody is presented like that in death, then chances are they had that sort of role in life as well. So if we get someone like that in, in a place like Birka in Sweden, we have to say uh, or ask the question about the women in a place like Repton as well. Would it not be possible that they also to actively took part? And I think it's it's unlikely that you would be part of a group like that and not be able to, at the very least, defend yourself and take part if you needed to. Now, it wasn't, as you say, just a matter of raiding. They were interested in political control to some extent and this went east as well and this is where you know we're tracing your carnelian bead now and it's certainly the anglo-saxon view of it isn't really conscious of how far east the vikings went about where did the evidence for that start to build up i mean because you have them essentially you know the rus you know who are in what's now ukraine and are the you know sort of founding myth of of russia you say these people were vikings yeah, so this is the this is the big question. It's one that's been controversial for a very long time and still is very controversial. So these people that we call the Rus, are they Vikings or not? Are they Scandinavian or are they something else? There isn't really an easy answer to it. But if we look at the earliest sources, the first sort of first time we hear about them in a written record is in 839, so a few decades before Repton. And it's actually uh, in, in Ingelheim, so it's in, in sort of Francia, and it's at the court of Louis the Pious, who is, uh, he has a, a visit from, from this uh, delegation that's come from Byzantium. And they have with them a group that call themselves the Rus. And he hasn't heard of them before, he has no idea who they are, but they're coming to him to ask for help. And he's very suspicious and he interrogates them for quite some time, asks them about you know, their origins and they tell him that they are Swedes, basically, or from the, from the people of the Swedes. And then later on, we have all these other records, especially from the Russian Primary Chronicle, that talk about the Rus and give this kind of origin story for essentially what's become the Rusians or, or Russians or Russia. Uh, and this also talks about the Rus as these people coming from the north, from places like Sweden, coming in to take over and establish the entire Rusian state. So that, again, links that to Scandinavia. And then we have all the archaeological evidence. We have lots of artefacts, lots of objects of definite clear Scandinavian origins. We know we have Scandinavian settlements. We know we have people going through. But the question is just, are these Jewish people definitely the same as the Vikings? And that, that is still something that is quite contentious. And how, if they are the same as the Vikings, if they're Scandinavian origin, how did they get there and when? So we know that most of the travel is down through the river system. So it's down the Volga and the Dnieper. And we know that both from the archaeological uh, material that's spread uh, along the, uh, the rivers. So you can see if you look at any maps or plots of that, it's just all the little dots just appear along these river routes. And the rivers really, uh, I mean, this, this is what led to the, the title of my book, really, was this focus on the rivers, is because 
they are really being taken advantage of. They are extremely efficient ways of travel and in some places almost the only way of traveling. So we know that that's how they are able to spread. We also know that this starts really right at the beginning of the Viking Age. In fact, even before we start seeing the attacks uh, in the West. So we start seeing the settlements. But we also start having objects and things coming from the East and into Scandinavia. So we have the kind of not just things going out, but also stuff going back in. And that's especially things like silver. So dirham coins, Islamic coins, start to appear in vast quantities all over Scandinavia. And even, as we now know, uh, more and more of them turning up in England as well. And you've got details of sort of like Viking graffiti, you know, people carving Viking, obviously Viking ships into the stonework of Constantinople and Baghdad. Absolutely. So I mean, that's what's so remarkable. You have real evidence of, of people going that far. So Constantinople or Istanbul was one of the major destinations. We, we know that from later written sources as well. But you can go into the Hagia Sophia Mosque, as it is now, and you can actually find graffiti with names. There's several names in runic characters, uh, essentially a sort of Halfdan was here, just just like you would do. <laughs> I we did that sort of thing as, as as children. You know, you would sort of put your name places, uh, and here you've got people doing it in the ninth and tenth centuries. And I think what I really love is that that just brings that human element to it. These are individual people who go on these great big journeys, just like like we might do. Now, is there a sense of of when Vikings went somewhere? Obviously, they traded. And you know, furs and silver and all the things that we know that they that went back and forth, and Cornelian beads that went back and forth. But were they interested in taking and holding territory in a formal way, or did they like to squat by a river in a big military camp and simply take tithes and taxes from anyone who came past? I mean, what was their, their modus operandi? So I think it's a combination of both. So some would have just been there for a short-term gain. They would be there to to get wealth and come back again. But others definitely were in the same way as they were in England with the Great Army, looking for land. We don't know quite as much about that in the East as we do in the West. In the West, especially in places like England, we have a lot of records. And as we get towards the Norman Conquest, we get more and more documentary evidence of land ownership. Uh, and so we can sort of track that. In the East, we don't really have that. So I think for a long time, we've thought that it was very much more just a, a sort of passing through, setting up camps, taking advantage of whoever, you know, people or objects. But we are now wondering, perhaps there's more of a, a settlement pattern there in the East as well, that people are looking for land, looking for long-term land. And maybe that's where they sort of merge into this new Rus identity, because quite quickly, you start to, to sort of combine with other cultures and, and assimilate, just like the Vikings did in, in England, but also there, sort of essentially merging into this, this new identity and, and losing some of the Scandinavian-ness and, and get these sort of belting pots, as it were. Now, this identity is, a, I mean, obviously you're an archaeologist, you're interested in the past, but it's in a, inescapably a huge political hot potato, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been contentious for you know hundreds of years, really. And, and even today, that is quite contentious. And, and these terms, Vikings and, and Anglo-Saxon um, as well, are being used. What that means to, to a lot of people in the world today is, and is the way it is being used in some quite, uh, quite difficult and quite challenging ways. And a lot of that is tied up to, to our sort of quite modern beliefs uh, of those identities, not necessarily what really happened a thousand years ago. In terms of obviously, a you know the Nazis appropriated the idea of Viking origins 
which makes it tricky. But there's also this question, you know, for, for a lot of Russian nationalists, what's now inconveniently Ukraine is the heartland, isn't it? Absolutely. So that is really the key territory. And it's been difficult to study as well for a long time. So under the Soviet Union, uh, looking at these Scandinavian and Vikings links was really not supported. And in fact, one of the sites that I work at in Ukraine, there was an archaeologist was sent from Moscow to, to prove that the Vikings were never there, that there was no Scandinavian uh, input. So uh, this, this female archaeologist was sent to excavate some burial mounds to show that they were definitely of a Slavic character and culture. Of course, that's not what she found at all. She found an awful lot of very definite Scandinavian uh, evidence there. So that didn't, didn't really go as planned. But um, I mean, part of this goes back to those early records and this early idea that the Scandinavians or the Rus were called in to uh, take control over these poor people who couldn't rule themselves. And you can see why that doesn't fit very well with, with anybody's origin story, really, the idea that the indigenous population were incapable of ruling themselves. So also, you said that word Slav comes from slave, or slave comes from Slav. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that is... The name of, of the entire, entire group relates to, to that slave trading. Uh, so that, again, gives us some indications to why it is so contentious today. Do you have a sense, speaking of slave trading, of, again, mythology around the extent to which the Vikings were slavers and, indeed, you know, human sacrifice and so forth? What's the actual evidence? Is it, is it possible or, or to, to see how extensive Viking slave networks were, or is, is that something that gets lost in the archaeological record? Yeah, that is a really, really difficult one, because it's very difficult to prove the evidence, you know, what, how would you prove slavery? Because these slaves or these enslaved people become essentially invisible in the archaeological record. Uh, it's very difficult to prove that somebody was taken and forcibly migrated uh, or moved around, taken advantage of. Usually we won't have the, the graves, they won't be given a, a burial in, in the same way that perhaps free people would have been given burials. And even if they are, how do you prove that, that sort of life history? So it is extremely difficult. The only real ways tend to be from the, the written records. But other than that, it's seeing the sort of goods that come back and the sort of wealth, knowing from other written sources, we've got some really fantastic contemporary Arabic sources as well that, that give us some idea of the slave trade. So if you take that into account and you look at all the wealth that's coming into, into Scandinavia, and some of that, that wealth in silver especially, is really quite extraordinary. And you sort of you almost have to deduce what they could possibly be trading in returns. This trade in human lives is certainly a very big part of it, but to quantify it in any way is is probably always going to be impossible. You mentioned these Arabic sources. I mean, I think I'm right in saying the only contemporary description of a Viking burial is an Arabic one. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So that's one of these descriptions of, of a Rus uh, burial. So he, uh, Ibn Fadlan, uh, an Arabic traveller essentially describes what we can now really recognise as a Viking burial. So even though he calls them the Rus, it's exactly the same as a burial that we find in the archaeological record in places like Scandinavia. And it's very graphic. It involves a lot of violence. It involves uh, human sacrifice. But it is really quite extraordinary to, to see that as a, as a big performance. It wasn't just a practical matter of putting a dead person in the ground. It's a, it's a performance that goes over a period of about 10 days or so. And it's really quite interesting reading. Um, is, it, is it plausible to you? Do you think it's... Because a lot of the time, you know, you're sifting out this is propaganda. These are people who are scared of being attacked from the sea and they you know, think these people are monsters. 
does it read to you like something we can trust as a source? I actually think it does. Yeah, I think that some of the detail may be embellished or some of it might be misunderstood. We don't know how much of it is lost in translation because they wouldn't have been able to communicate, we don't think, so they would have used interpreters, for example, uh, interpreting both the language but also the, the sort of rights going on. But when you look at what's happening, when you look at a lot of that and you look at a grave like the Oseberg ship, for example, in Norway, uh, things like there's a grave chamber that's really well described. You know, there's a bed in there. There's, there's people buried in them with all their equipment, with all the things, animal sacrifices. We find those in the archaeological record and that parallel is really quite staggering. So I think with all of that, it just can't be enough of a coincidence, really. So that we, I really do think that we, we can believe at least, I don't know, 75 to 80% of it, and perhaps the rest is embellishment. I mean, you know, they're, they're burial rites. You know, to moderns, we'd say, you know, they, have a, they had a very, very strange and elaborate religious belief system. How much did the Vikings alternately Christianize, Islamicize, and, and vice versa, did you know? Did the cult of Thor and Woden go the other way? Yeah, that's another one of those that is quite difficult to pick up on in the archaeological record because, again, how do you show what religion you are? So unless you actually make it quite clear in, in your burial, in some, something on your body, by, for example, the, the, the warrior in Repton was buried with a Thor's hammer around his neck, uh, but then he was also buried right next to a church in a very prominent position uh, next to what we know as a church. And then we have some written records suggesting that people were actually converting as a political tool as well. So some records that suggest that some of the Vikings would just pretend to be Christians if it gave them better trading opportunities, because, you know, perhaps somebody wouldn't trade uh, with a pagan. And so by converting or saying you've converted to Christianity, that gave you an advantage. So we know that certainly happened. And we see, we can see it in burial rites as well. Things seem to happen side by side. So some people get cremated, some people get buried, some get buried with grave goods and some not. And these could all be parts of the religious beliefs. So it does seem like we're talking about societies that were quite, actually quite open to different religions that seem to be living side by side. And I think quite often, especially here in, in Britain or in England, we tend to see it as a very, very clear sort of dichotomy between the Christians and the pagans and always that battle. I think the reality on the ground probably wasn't like that. So I think people were much more used to taking bits and pieces. And certainly a lot of the Scandinavian religions weren't so, well, from what we know of them, weren't so prescriptive. So they weren't sort of saying, you must only have one god. You could have lots of gods in different circumstances. So again, it's that sort of flexibility, adaptability, I think, that really was a big part of the Viking success, that they could interact with people of so many different cultures and religions and, and sort of do a bit of a pick and mix of what was uh, what was preferable at, at any given time. Uh, can I end by asking, what is the, you know, moving forward, what are the big questions in your field that you're now working to answer? You know, what don't we know about the Vikings that we think we potentially might be able to? I think we do still have a lot more evidence uh, coming out of the bones. Uh, obviously, this is a bit of an obsession of mine working as a bioarchaeologist. We are starting to get a lot more evidence from ancient DNA as well. And that's starting to answer some of the big picture of, of you know, who's going where. But I think we can start to narrow down the timing a bit more as well. We can get more of an idea of dates so we can understand how that happens over time. So who's moving where? What's happening to, to the women, for example? And are we getting more people coming into Scandinavia? I think 
we can start to unravel a lot more of that evidence from the individual bodies and actually get a better sense of what happens at the beginning of the Viking Age and what happens later on. And again, that impact of the East in the bigger picture, as we've sort of, we're really starting to open our eyes to that much, much more, not just focusing on the West. But I think that will give us a better idea of then how the Scandinavians fitted into to the world at large, essentially, in that particular timescale. Kat Jarman, thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you for inviting me.